we've done a lot this morning in asking God to be with our boys and girls and our young people. So let's come and let's pray for ourselves this morning that we will learn also the message that God has for us. So let's come and, and let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you give us such a great message in the gospel. Thank you that you never intended it to be put into books and remain there. Thank you that you give it to us to be lived. So help us this morning to be gospel people, to live the words that you have given us. Help us to inspect our own lives as you guide us, to see where we need to draw closer to you so that in the fullness of the love of Jesus, we can be true disciples who take his name and who are part of your great family. So help us this morning as we learn. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, Christoph started for us our study together in John's Gospel, and he took us through the prologue that John sets out in chapter 1. John is really building us, building us up for what this book is going to be about. The prologue helps us to understand what John is looking to achieve. He's basically explaining to us the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, who came and lived among us so that we would know the way to follow and the way to God. So Jesus, who was in the beginning, and in who and through who all things are made, came to teach us, to instruct us, and to give us that example to follow. Jesus came to present to us the best life possible. Life in all its fullness. So the ministry of Jesus, John says, is about sharing the truth of God's love which we see fulfilled in his life, his death, and his resurrection. So John finishes his prologue, and he starts into his narrative. He starts into the story of recounting how all this happened and how all this came to be. And the first person that he introduces us to is John the Baptist. Now, last week we were introduced to John in verse 15. The apostle uh, John, the author of the gospel, tells us that John the Baptist was the one who testifies about Jesus. So it's John's job, John the Baptist's job, to prepare the way. He is the one who's going to reveal Jesus to the world. Get it ready for this wonderful message that Jesus is going to bring. Jesus and his ministry of love and of truth. Imagine going to a concert. Irrespective of what genre of music you have as your preference, you go to a concert, you have your ticket, you've paid for what and who you want to go and see. You hand it in at the ticket desk, they tell you to proceed on through, and either you've been allocated a seat or you go and find your spot to stand so that you can enjoy this performance. And normally in a concert setting, a band will come 
They'll come on and they'll start playing. They'll start singing. And you're getting into the music, whatever it may be, and you're enjoying it. And then another one will come and they'll do exactly the same. But there will become a moment in that concert when the one who you have paid for, the one that you have been waiting and anticipating, the one whose ticket you've been looking at for ages since you bought it, the date that has been in the diary, that moment arrives as that artist comes on stage and gives you the concert that you've been waiting for. You may have enjoyed what has gone before. You may have enjoyed the music. You may even know the music. But these warm-up artists have only had one job. That's to warm you up as the audience, to get you ready for the main event so that you are in an atmosphere and that you are in a, a frame of mind and a good form to enjoy the music that you've wanted to come and enjoy. That's the rule of John the Baptist. His rule is the warm-up. He's the one who's saying, listen, you good Jews, you know everything in the Old Testament. Do you know exactly what God said would happen so that his plan of salvation will be fulfilled? You've been waiting, you've been watching. But now, sound the trumpets, roll back the curtains, because the center stage is going to be filled with the one you have been waiting for. The Jews had genuinely been waiting for a Messiah. They had genuinely been waiting for one who would come and who would free them in all spheres of life. You see, the problem was that the people didn't know who to look for and they didn't know exactly what to look for. John lived at a time when the world was in a volatile state. The Romans were hated and despised in Palestine, that area that we know as the Holy Land, the biblical Palestine. And various groups of Jews had formed and had set themselves up to actively make trouble for the ruling authorities, the Romans. The early decades of the first century, uh, it was a time of intense speculation about the Messiah. Messiah literally means anointed one, reflecting the designated means of appointing people to special tasks in the Old Testament. We come across it time and time again People are anointed for certain jobs. The most vivid probably for us is David being anointed as king. Anointed for a special rule. So anointing implies that whoever the anointee is has been given special gifts and has a special task that God's spirit will lead them into. So opinion about this Messiah was mixed. Some thought that the Messiah would bring peace. Others stressed the Messiah would bring righteousness. Due to the Roman occupation, others expected a military rule of a Messiah and saw him as leading the overthrow of the Roman yoke, as one author says it. And beyond that, looking to him to secure the dominance of the Jewish nation. For some, he would be a clearly supernatural visitation from God and for others, he would be a prince, a human prince in the line of David, restoring the monarchy of Israel. But John, John is very clear who the Messiah would be. He would be the one whom God would make known to him. 
verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. John the Baptist knew exactly what John the Apostle was writing about because it had been revealed to John the Baptist who this person would be. And so in the passage that we read this morning, we have two moments where we're, first of all, introduced to John the Baptist. And this is important. We need to understand the role of John the Baptist so that we can see fully the role of Christ that is to come. So the first introduction to John the Baptist happens in that first section up to verse 28. A group of priests and Levites came to inquire who he was. John had been making the ruling religious class a little bit nervous. He had been attracting crowds of people to his ministry. He was baptizing people in the Jordan. So this was challenging the ruling class. He was saying to them, I don't need your religious authority. I have my own authority. That is the authority given to me by God. He's also saying, you're getting it wrong. I'm the one attracting the crowd. And people don't come for nothing. John was seen as a revolutionary. He was seen by the ruling classes as someone who was going to come and make trouble and upset the status quo. For the people who came along, they also saw John as the revolutionary. They saw John as the one who would liberate them if that's what they were looking for. They saw John as the one who would usher in a new period because of the type of life that he lived. John challenged society socially and theologically. So John is asked, who are you? And he doesn't hesitate to give an answer. He knows what they're thinking. He says straight out, I'm not the Christ. If you think I am, you're wrong. I am not. Then they ask him, well, are you Elijah? Now, for us reading this text today, it may be quite bizarre that they would just pick the name of an Old Testament prophet out of the air to ask, are you Elijah? But the Bible tells us that that's who they're supposed to look for. That's who they're supposed to see. Matthew 3 verse 4 tells us a little bit more detail about John. In that passage, we're told that John was dressed in camel hair with a leather belt, and we later discover that his foods of choice were locusts with wild honey. He lived in the wilderness, and he spoke into the society of his time. For the Jews, they recognized John's appearance and John's actions to be like that of the prophet Elijah. Because 2 Kings 1 to 8 gives an account of when Elijah was met by representatives of King Ahaziah. And they report back to the king and describe a meeting, and this is how they word it, with a man with a garment of hair and with a leather belt around his waist. The king said, this was Elijah the Tishbite. The Jews were expecting Elijah. So it was the most natural thing for these guys who knew their Bible inside out to ask, well then, are you Elijah? See, God had told his people in Malachi, that last little book in the Old Testament, that he would send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The great and dreadful day of the Lord, of course, is his judgment. And God had said in Malachi, I'm going to send the prophet Elijah 
before that day comes. Can you see how people are starting to get a little bit edgy whenever we add things up with what they think they know and what they're guessing? They've been waiting for a Messiah. Here was a man who looked like Elijah. Elijah had been promised to come before the day of judgment. These people are getting edgy because to them the fulfillment of everything of God was going to happen. And the ironic thing is they missed it completely because it was, but they were looking in the wrong places for the Messiah. John tells them that he is not Elijah. And so they next ask, well then, are you a prophet? Again, they're going back into the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Throughout all of the theology that the Old Testament, that the Jews knew, they knew that a prophet would come before the Lord would come again. And so they, time and time again, had waited for this prophet, but he had never come. And so now again they ask, well then, if you're not the Christ, if you're not Elijah, are you the prophet? John states that he is not a prophet. Finally, they ask the simple question, John, who are you? John goes back to the prophet Isaiah and he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3. He is the voice of one calling in the desert. Make, the, make straight the way for the Lord. See, John is not the substance, but rather he is the communicator. He's borrowing imagery from the Old Testament. He is basically saying, I am just the workman who is making a road for the Messiah. And in this, he is moving the emphasis from himself onto the one who will be revealed, the one who will come. In this moment, these religious leaders are focusing on John and who he is. But John says, you know, don't look at me. Look at the one who is to come. As you can imagine, the ruling leaders, religious leaders, aren't happy. And so John the Apostle tells us that the Pharisees come and they question him. And so now they get technical. So they've asked all those questions about the person of John the Baptist. Well, now they're going to get technical in what he does. And they want to know why he is baptizing. What right does he baptize if he is not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And again, John's answer is simple and it is the same. He is simply the messenger. He does a little bit of a complicated thing with wording in the latter part of that first section. But basically he is saying that the one who is with them now in their time and in their space, whom they don't recognize, well, he is the one who is the message. Then John gives us a wonderful little picture of his true character. He uses an illustration of untying the straps of the sandals. John says that the one who is coming after him, the message, the one who is to come, John's not even worthy enough to be a slave in his presence. He wouldn't be fit to untie the straps of the sandals. John says this is how great 
the one coming after me is. You see, John is doing what he's supposed to do. John is pointing people to Jesus. That is all John's job. Pointing and directing people to Jesus rather than to himself. So this is the first moment of John that we're introduced to John. The second happens the very next day. And we pick up the second section in verse 29. John, it's a moment where John introduces Jesus. John sees Jesus coming. And he wants to introduce him to those who are around him. So the day after he has been questioned, John sees Jesus coming towards him. And he says, everyone look. Look at this man coming down the road. And John declares, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Apostle writing this gospel wants to make us very clear about the purpose of Jesus. He has come to take away the sin of the world. Not just the world in his time, but now and into the future, however long that may be. This is the salvation plan coming to be fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ. That we, in 2012, sitting here in this building, would know Jesus came to save me and to save you. John says, here's the one. He's the one to look at. He is the one who will do something that I'm not quite sure how he's going to do it or what he's going to do, but I know he's going to do it. He's going to take away the sin of the world. This is mind-blowing. Because the Jews who are hearing they are so consumed with sin. They are so consumed that they can be contaminated for simply looking at someone who is caught in great sin. Sin consumes every aspect of their lives because the rules that they have are more about dealing with sin and staying away from sin than actually worrying about repentance. They're more concerned about who they cannot talk to and what they can and cannot do they don't actually see what the root of sin is and it is their own heart. John says, throw the curtains open. Look to the center stage because here is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. This is the reason why John is baptizing. He never really gave a full answer to that. But when we look at this next section and we, we take it into consideration in reading the first section, John is baptizing for one reason. That is to prepare people to receive Christ. He's been baptizing that so through baptism, they will see that the time of Jesus is here. He's breaking away from all of the religious normalities He's going against the grain. He is saying, behold, the Lamb of God. John's gospel doesn't record for us the story of Jesus being baptized. But John's gospel does record for us the testimony 
of John. If you want to read the baptism of Jesus, it's Matthew 3, verse 15. But for John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus revealed to him the Messiah. Verse 34 of this passage records what God said to John concerning Jesus. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John had no doubt that Jesus was the Son of God and the promised Messiah. And further confidence came with the remaining of the Holy Spirit. That moment where God says, on whom my Spirit will remain. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went. The Holy Spirit came for a particular purpose and a particular task, so that someone would be filled with the Spirit to be used for a God-given rule. God has now told John, this is different. Jesus is different. John records that God says that the Spirit would remain on Jesus. And immediately John would have known that Jesus was truly someone special with a very special work ahead of him. God's Spirit was remaining on Jesus to prove his anointing as the Messiah. So John's job was all about showing people Jesus, pointing them to the Messiah. John was human. In many respects, he was like you and me. And how easy would it have been for John, with that crowd that was around him, with the popularity that he was getting, with, with this kicking against the grain of the ruling class, how easy would it have been for him to set himself up as someone great? The human nature would say it was probably pretty easy. Satan to say, now think about it, John. You have this platform. You have all of these people following you and listening to every word that you're saying. Go for it. Go to town. Become the showman. Become the one who puts himself on the center stage. Not John. John knows very clearly that he is the warm-up artist. He will clear the stage for the one who is rightfully to take center. John knows his place. He is the voice preparing the way of the Lord. He does what so many of us couldn't do. See, John knew. John knew that whatever or whoever was coming next was greater and could do greater than what he ever could. For John, it cost him his life. But he also gained his life, his eternal life, as he gave witness to the Messiah, as he gave witness to Jesus Christ. As we go through life, our job is just like John's. Our job as followers of Jesus is to simply point people to him. It's to say, don't look, about, don't look at me. Don't look at what I do because I am a sinner saved by grace. Rather, look to the one who gives grace 
and who gives forgiveness. The church over the history of this world has been called hypocritical. It's been called out of touch. I guess that has come because the church has tried to set itself up as the answer to the world. We're not. All we can do is point to the one who has the answer, who gives life in its fullest. So why do we find it so difficult to show people Jesus? Why do we hide behind the structure of church rather than doing what Jesus has told us to do and the example that the New Testament has given us? Rebecca Manley Peppert, the author of Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World, Evangelism as a Way of Life, believes that it's one of two things, or indeed both. Either we are afraid or we don't fully get Jesus. We are afraid. We, we allow the world to frighten us. We become afraid of what people will think. We become afraid of the social standings that we have. We become afraid that our communities will think we're odd We cannot allow the fear that this world produces in us to have its reign. We cannot allow fear to monopolize us so that we won't show Jesus. We must have confidence that it is God's message, that it is he who has the answers. All he asks for us is to be open and honest, acknowledging our own sin and doing our best to live the life that he has called us to. We must not allow fear to hinder our proclamation of the gospel. The second is that we don't fully get Jesus. We have an inaccurate view of what Jesus has done for us. We take it for granted or we become so used to it that it doesn't affect us anymore. Jesus was declared as the Lamb of God. And this is another Old Testament image that the Messiah would be the suffering servant and also from the Exodus, that idea that a sacrifice would be given, the spilling of blood so that people's sins would be forgiven. In the Timken Art Museum in San Diego, you will find the El Greco painting of St. Peter holding the keys to the kingdom. It's a magnificent painting of Peter holding these keys, inviting and showing the way into the kingdom. It is a painting to be taken time over and to look at. But if you turn round in that art museum, behind you you will see a small walnut-colored picture. And on it you will see what is almost like a photograph of a lamb lying on the ground. As you look closer at this very small picture, you will see that the lamb's legs are tied and that the lamb being shadowed with the darkness from behind it is attached to a cross. The painting is titled The Agnus Dei, in Latin, The Lamb of God. Do we get that this is Jesus? the one and the only one who could go to a cross, who could and would die for us so that our sins 
would be forgiven and that we would have the fullest life ever. Do we have a view of Jesus that allows us to have the confidence in him that it's not us who does the saving, but rather it is he who when he is introduced to those in this world around us, he will be faithful. He will warm hearts. He will draw people closer to himself. And if he chooses to, he will use us along the way. Do we have an accurate view of Jesus, the one who came to be that suffering servant to die for us, so that we would have the great privilege of introducing him to others. Let's finish up. In our discipleship groups this past week, one of the, the questions that we were asked to consider were think about ways in which you'd like to know more of the life of Jesus in this coming year. Think about ways in which you'd like to know more of the life of Jesus in this coming year year. I reflected on this, and as I looked at my own life and recognized me, I, there was a, a huge challenge came up, and that was I need to spend more time reading God's Word, not for the purposes of, of coming to this lectern to preach or doing talks, but to allow God's Word itself in my own quiet time and space to work in my life. I realized that it was more important for me to do that and to cut things out of my schedule in the day that were nonsense. So for me, this coming year, how I'd like to know more of the life of Jesus is to cut out the things that aren't really important and to spend time with him. I want to, in my mind and in my heart, capture that image every day of the suffering servant on a cross so that I won't be shy when it comes to sharing Jesus because I know me and I can be as shy as anyone whenever it comes to telling people about Jesus. I want his word to fill my life so that as I meet him, I will know the fullness of life and that the excitement will build so that I will want to share that fullness of life with those around me. What about you? How would you like, and what can you do to know more of the life of Jesus in this coming year so that we can do what John is doing and says, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Can you move from a place of fear into confidence? Can you move from a low view of Jesus to a view where you're strong in the knowledge that he is the one who gives life to the full? I'd like to tell you to go out and buy your camel hair and dip into your wild honey and locusts. But yeah, we must be like John the Baptist. We must be the people who move Christianity from ourselves and thinking we have the answers and saying, look to Jesus, look to him and allow him to, to give you those moments 
It's not about programs in church. It's not about being part of social groups or clubs. We need to be people who, like John, reveal Jesus as the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these things and as we think about what it means to communicate Jesus, to show people Jesus, help us to do this. Help us to do it in our homes with our families and friends, with our neighbors and our communities. Help us to do it in our workplaces. Help us to do it in our places of study. Wherever we do life, help us to be the ones who introduce people to Jesus. Father, keep us humble. May we never think that we are the ones who take center stage. May we never think that we are the ones who save. May we never think that we are the ones who have all the answers. But rather, may we have the confidence in you and in your word. May we have the confidence that you will do what you have been doing throughout all time and throughout all generation. And that is softening hearts, opening blind eyes, and drawing lost souls to yourself. Father, give us this great confidence that we can go into this world, that we can be partners with Jesus, and we can introduce him to those around us. And we ask it in his name alone. Amen.